You are listening to Water Flying, a show dedicated to all things seaplanes. Brought to you by the Seaplane Pilots Association. My name is Steve McCoy. I'm the executive director of the Seaplane Pilots Association, which is the world's largest nonprofit advocacy organization dedicated to the protection and promotion of the water flying community. Climb aboard! We're about to start today's episode. Well, today we are joined by our first guest from a float manufacturer, Mr. Levi Gamond. Levi is the manufacturing engineer from PK Floats in, uh, in Maine, and he's here to talk about float design and construction. And we might even have a big, exciting announcement later on in the show for a new product from uh, PK. Maybe if we're lucky. Maybe. So PK Floats has been operating since 1954, and they've collected quite a following as a result of their reputation for producing durable, reliable floats for seaplanes. So as a flight instructor myself, I'm flying on PK floats. I can speak to that reliability firsthand. And I know Steve has experience flying on PK as well. Oh, yeah. I love them. So, Levi, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Hey, thanks for having me on your new podcast. Uh, For anyone not familiar with PK floats, uh, check out our website at pkfloats.com or our Instagram page. Love it. And you guys have a great Instagram. Well, thank you course yeah i yes, love the videos she's all over it so uh, well, the yes. angles they have such good angles for the videos they have like a camera under the belly yeah like belly they've cam. done really pretty cool of, stuff a lot of the stuff on our instagram is actually customer uh photos that they send me uh just uh, in day-to-day flying they take pictures and they send them my way and there's a lot of great shots isn't that a great thing that's a you know kind of beautiful thing about the environment with social media and everything and um, it's just awesome. I mean, nothing better than having your, your customers being your best promoters. It's true. It's true. And they're excited to fly on PK floats cause they like them so much. And so they want to share with other people, it's just yeah. free advertising. Yeah. So it's great. Grow the flock. <laughs> so flying up in Maine, I know when I think of seaplanes or when I used to think of seaplanes, my mind went immediately to, you know, seaplane pilots up in Alaska, the bush pilots flying down in the Bahamas, you know, doing any saltwater operation. So it wasn't like Maine, flying in Maine as a seaplane pilot was the first thing that I would think of. So what is that community like up there as far as seaplanes go? So Maine has over 6,000 lakes, and there's a very active seaplane community here. Um, before roads were built in the north woods of Maine, which is the largest expanse of forest east of the Mississippi, that that area was primarily accessed by uh, float plane in the summertime. And that dates back to the 1940s. Now there's roads, but people are still flying uh, float planes, mostly straight floats. But in recent years, more and more people are getting amphibs um, for the, the convenience of them. Yeah. And, and I don't want to forget that uh, Maine is the host of the largest seaplane fly-in in the world, uh, the Greenville International Fly-in or Seaplane right. Fly-in. That's right in the heart of seaplane uh, you know, seaplane flying here in Maine, and, and everybody loves Greenville. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. If you have not been there, uh, you need to put uh, the second weekend in September is generally when it occurs. I think it's always, except this year with COVID, but uh, second weekend yeah. um, in uh, September. It's always the weekend after Labor Day. Yeah, yeah, which is awesome. 
I just think it's cool that seaplanes were operating before you even had roads. So it really is, you know, they're kind of, you know, they have a big hold on the area. They were there before cars themselves. And so I don't think there are many areas that could say that. Yeah, but I mean, you haven't been there yet. We're going to hopefully take the Super Cub there next year. But I mean, there's still a, a lot of the fish camps that I've gone to. Uh, Igor Sikorsky's place up there, it's 100 miles from the nearest paved road. Wow. Wow. So. Yeah. yeah and people will use, you know, this area as their base and they'll go 300 miles north into Canada and be in a very remote part of uh, Quebec, which is, you know, every bit as remote as flying in Alaska. Um, and the fishing is probably just as good. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, this kind of walks us into this uh, next kind of question that I had. You know, I know from experience operating seaplanes in Maine is, is very different than operating here in Florida. But talk about some of those challenges and some of those unique conditions in Maine. Yeah. So we have a shorter season than you guys. Um, our, our season's about six months long. Uh, the ice will go out in April. Um, around the middle of the month and the water is still very cold. Um, the more hardy seaplane pilots will start flying in April, but most people are beginning to fly in, in May and June when the water warms up a little bit. Um, the wind and the weather always play a part of seaplane flying no matter where you are. Uh, here, you have to pay attention to the weather because the weather can change uh, quite a bit over the course of the day. Um, one of the biggest concerns is fuel. Um, there's not a lot of places left to buy fuel on the water. Um, so people will end up transporting their own fuel. And, and that's probably the biggest challenge um, flying boat planes now in Maine. So the planning, the planning that has to go into certainly, you know, cross-country flights, but it has to be pretty extensive, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's uh, some... Uh, hard rock spines in the water and little things like that that hide under the water and on the shorelines that can be pretty damaging to floats as well. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely a lot of shallow spots that could get you into trouble, whether it's ledge or rock. And you've really got to pay attention to the water and check the conditions before you land because the even the water level might change. This summer we had record drought and a lot of people ended up hitting hitting rock. Wow. Uh, that in places that they had been before and had always been fine, but the water level two feet lower than it ever was before, it changes a lot. You just got to pay attention. It's not like landing on a runway. You know, the conditions are always changing. You just got to pay attention. Certainly. Certainly. Yeah. It's not a static runway. You just a little bit of pre-planning, a little bit of maybe talking to other people that have flown into that area, getting the conditions. And I just love that. I mean, he just like used one of our taglines. It's not like landing on a runway. That's right. It's much better. <laughs> that that last part. I mean, other than the whole rock situation. Except for the rock situation. <laughs> so, which I guess you can have on a runway, but it's, a little, it's just a little different. Yeah. So, uh, Abby and I have both flown your floats, uh, and I can speak to the legendary durability of the PKs, um, you know, flying with Southern Seaplanes down there in New Orleans or up in New Orleans for us. Uh, but, I mean, they just love the PKs because they have a real hardcore industrial kind of seaplane mission. And I know they've been, like, super loyal and super fans of the PK floats over the years. And um, I've enjoyed flying them with them quite a bit. So we kind of want to have an idea of um, what's your secret sauce? What makes the floats so incredibly durable? The uh, the solid conduct uh, construction of the, the PK floats is, what they're known for. 
um, the engineering that went into these floats in the 1970s and 80s um, followed through till today. Uh, they're a good design right from the beginning. It's a simple construction. There's no hydroformed part. Um, it's all flat sheet metal construction. The, the V-bottom shape is, is kind of unique to our float. We're the only ones that feature a variable dead rise bottom, uh, which essentially is the float at the step area is a flatter V than at the bow. So as the float cuts through the water, uh, the bottom is actually changing in shape as you go further back on the float. That really increases the performance of our, our float. When you combine that with the hydro boosters, which are the V-shaped aluminum extrusions riveted to the bottom of the float, it really makes a, a durable float bottom that also has really good hydrodynamic characteristics. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. And the floats are fully riveted. There's there's no flush rivets. They're they're fully riveted with upwards of five to six thousand uh, rivets in each pair of floats. Um, we bond the uh, aluminum skins to the stiffeners with uh, 3M5200, which is a very good adhesive sealant. Combine that with the rivets, and it just makes a, a very strong product overall. That's still lightweight. So I know we had talked about this before, but I I would love to hear more about it, and I'm sure the listeners would as well. So flush rivets, what what is that? So flush rivets were developed... Um, early on to make a more aerodynamic airplane. I think Howard Hughes developed that technology. It's great when you're trying to make a streamlined wing, let's say. There's no interruptions in the airflow around the rivet head. But for a seaplane float that has thin aluminum skins, it, it's hard to make a strong connection with a flush rivet. They look good because they're flush, but a full rivet that you can see the, the rivet on the surface uh, is a much stronger connection in thin aluminum sheet metal, such as what a float is built out of. Um, so our our floats have very, very few flush rivets. They're only used where there might be interference with a landing gear component. Um, and, and that just makes a stronger product that, that tends to look a little more traditional. You know, it's what somebody would expect from a, an early float, like a, an Edo. Um, but it's a process that we've been using all along uh, to build our floats. It ain't broke, don't fix it kind of thing? Right, right. Edo patented riveted aluminum float construction in 1934, and when that patent expired in 1954 is when PK started. They Very jumped nice. on it. They were like, we're snagging this. We're, we're adopting this. It's a good idea, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so, you know, that is one of the things. Your floats are, um, just say, you know, they're that they're, they're a, a hardcore float and they, they look like that. They, you know, they're kind of the car hard jeans or, or jacket of floats probably. So, um, exactly. and, and speaking of that, uh, speaking of car hearts, that kind of brings up Maine fish and wildlife and, and the way some of the government operations and, and, and people in your backyard are actually using these for government missions. What's that all about? Yeah. So the state of Maine owns four, four or five pair of our seaplane floats. I know one pair they're still using has over 20,000 hours logged wow. on multiple 185s. And, and these floats were built in the, the 70s for the state of Maine, and they're still using them. That's amazing. They've recently got you know some new pairs, uh, but they, they have these older floats that are still uh, airworthy, and they're still using them, and they're still every bit as dependable. 
and you know it, it goes on to the operators, the commercial operators that use our float. Uh, they they love them because they're just a tough old reliable product that they don't have to worry about cracking or or delaminating or, or any other issues. They're just reliable when they need them. Yeah, and you guys got some pretty diverse missions. I just want to kind of deviate for a moment and talk about some of the diverse missions that you guys are doing. And for us as an advocacy organization, it's always kind of important for us to not only establish what we're doing for the seaplane community, but for the non-flying and the non-seaplane community. And one of the things I've been fascinated, and I know your airplanes or airplanes with your floats on have been used for, is the restocking of fish populations with the native fish populations. Uh, you have anything on that? Any insight on that? Yeah. So back to the state of Maine aircraft, they outfit our floats with what they call drop tanks. They, they look like, um, the you know the old fuel tanks on the the fighter jet um they're just an aerodynamic shaped tank uh the top is open and they're allowed to pivot so they they can they can dump the tank when it's full of fish and they'll have a bottle of oxygen in the airplane that's piped down into the tank to supply oxygen to the it's usually trout in maine um so they'll they'll land at a boat landing where the fisheries can't fill the tank up and the pilot will take off uh, fly over the the pond that would be too small to land in because otherwise you would land in the pond and, and drop the fish but they'll slow down to 80 miles an hour and uh, they'll hit a, a button in the airplane that releases the the lock on the tank and the tank dumps over and the fish uh, land on the surface of the water and they have a, a an exceptionally good survival rate because they've studied that and it's an effective way to get fish into these more remote ponds that would otherwise be impractical to either hike the fish in or to fly them in with a helicopter, which would be, you know, 10 times as expensive. So that's really amazing and everything. <laughs> she's, she's giddy today. I'm I don't sorry. know. She's... All I can imagine is someone walking along, you know, it's a beautiful day out and there's a seaplane that comes over and all these fish are getting we're, dropped out of this airplane. <laughs> raining trout it's on them. It honestly sounds like kind of an apocalyptic thing going on. <laughs> there's drought falling from the sky. <laughs> and all I can imagine, I, I'm sure they've had to do research and everything, you know, pumping the oxygen in or else you're going to be dropping a bunch of dead fish. So here we're having, trying to have a good news story about how seaplanes in, uh, impact the environment, and and all Abby can do is look, think about the carnage that happens. The I'm hot- just looking at Steve trying not to laugh because like, that's all I can imagine is just these fish falling from the sky. Oh my gosh! Wow, so, that so, is amazing though. Here you go. It's actually really good. So you know, invasive species again, where I spend a lot of my time. So they'll go in and eradicate all the invasive species, and then they'll bring in the correct species and repopulate the, the ponds. That's really pretty amazing. So I imagine it's the biggest compliment, the fact that the U.S. government recognizes your floats as a durable, long-lasting product that they can use. So I'm sure that's a huge compliment for you all. It, it is. It, it always amazes me when any customer calls for part support and they tell me what they have for floats. And, and it will be, uh, you know, it could be a float that's 50 or 60 years old. And I know just this summer, I've had several parts customers 
putting floats on their airplane for the first time. They were 60-year-old floats that, you know, are every every bit as good as, as any of our floats out there. And they used them all summer long, had a great experience flying, um, you know, for the first summer with, with the, their new pair of floats that are 60 years old. That's awesome. I mean, just the fact that people can come back and say, oh, I bought a pair of floats from you guys for 60 years. Because I know the thing now is, you know, you buy a phone and it's kind of designed to break in a year so that you have to buy a new phone. And the next year you have to buy a new phone. I'm going to get iPhone 12. The iPhone 3000. Yeah. So good grief. It just never ends. So that's that's just amazing. The fact that you guys create a product like that. So from a marketing standpoint, it, it's, um, it's a bit of a challenge because if I sell a new set of floats to Steve today, um, he might never need another new pair again unless he buys a new airplane. That's um, incredible. So we, we're always looking for, for new customers, and a lot of our repeat customers are upgrading their airplane, and they have sold their old airplane on the float. Um, so it, it's not like they're buying a new set every 10 years because the old ones wore out. Um, if if anything, they are just upgrading the airplane and, and, and putting you know a new pair on their new airplane. That's yeah. awesome. Dag awesome. on you guys, you make them too good. <laughs> and your manufacturing team. So who you've compiled together to put these floats um, together for people. A lot of them are pilots themselves, correct? Yeah, over half of the people that work here right now are seaplane rated pilots. And you know, I work here because I, I love aviation. I have a pilot's license and a, and a seaplane rating and I've owned several airplanes and I enjoy getting to uh, come to work at an airport and work on airplanes uh, on a, you know, a daily basis. You know, that's so interesting. And I think that's the reason a, a lot of us work here is just because we love aviation and um, that's why we do it. Do any of you guys fly on PK floats? Um, yeah, a couple of us here um, own PK floats, both straight floats and amphibs. Um, I myself have owned Edo's and, and another gentleman here owns, owned a pair of Edo's for, or owns a pair of Edo's for his Super Cub. And we're, uh, we're working on him to uh, switch over to the, the, the newest uh, float that we developed that we'll talk about a little later. I think that was a chance for a shameless plug. Do any of you guys fly <laughs> PK floats? Of course, all of us of fly course, PK yeah, floats. Of course, yeah, honestly. No, but I wanted to do my joke. Okay, so you guys are getting high on oh, your no, own another supply. Jo- another joke. Come on, it's a good joke. You're getting high on your own supply. Because, <laughs> like, you're, you're flying, and so you're getting... Never mind. Never mind. It's a terrible joke. I don't care. He wanted so badly to play this music, and I I just wanted to tell the joke. <laughs> so what kind of challenges do you encounter when designing or constructing a new float? So the biggest challenge is keeping the weight down on the product. Everybody tends to want amphibs uh, now. That's what we've, we've noticed. Uh, and, and pretty much all we're, we're going to design and build uh, from here on out is, is going to be amphibs unless the customer wants straight floats. Um, so we have to balance the cost of the end product with uh, a lightweight product. And we can, you know, balance that out along with durability to make a product that's affordable, that doesn't weigh, you know, too much, and that will last a long, long time. And that's the biggest challenge is to, to balance that equation. Um, several other challenges when designing a new product is, you know, how do you set that 
float up on a new airplane for the first time, figuring out the length of the strut so the CG of the airplane is located in the correct spot, the angle of the wing is correct to the float. Um, and then some of the other minor challenges with building an aluminum float, of course everyone's concerned about corrosion, with the modern chemical etches and epoxy primers and adhesive sealant, um, anodizing, you know, all of those go into building a float that will have a really good lifespan. Um, and and con- corrosion isn't really a concern with proper preventative maintenance. I like that. I like that. You know, we had a really good conversation earlier, and the whole idea that, you know, the weight being the most important thing when designing and constructing a new float. Because what you said, you know, you can create a float made of tin foil, aluminum foil from from your kitchen cabinet and charge nothing for it, but it's not going to be durable. It's just not going to be worth anything. It's going to be light. It's going to be light and cheap, but it's it's, it's kind of like, last. you know, you get to choose between these three things. Everything's give and take. So you guys have chosen yeah, the durability, we, certainly. Yeah, if we built a flow chart of solid steel, it would be durable. It would last an eternity, but it would be too heavy to fly. Right. So when, when we choose a material for the float it, it's based on the strength that's required the engineer determines that and you know the the people doing the marketing they are setting the price based on what the consumer will you know see as a good value based on what the competitors are charging you know our floats generally cost less than the competitors and you know all of this goes into our our end product that's known for the durability that you know we're not going to sacrifice durability for anything um that's what we we rely on to sell our floats is that reputation certainly and so it's really changed how i'm going to be thinking of floats from now on you know between the durability the weight and um the cost you know if you're going between these three things and it's just interesting how the different manufacturers work within you know we have to have you know certainly can't be too heavy can't be you know something that's going to fall apart in six months. So it's, it's given me a different way of thinking of these floats. Um, and everybody pushes for the lightest weight possible, right. which is great. But for people who use their floats in the real world, they need that float to not let them down when they're in the remote wilderness with their family. You know, when, it, when it counts, when you've got to get home and be safe uh, in doing that. And at the end of the day, you know, 10 pounds, Either way, 10 pounds lighter to sacrifice durability or 10 pounds more for a float that will last 40 years. In, in my opinion, I want the float that's durable. Certainly might save your life. It yeah. might save your life. I have a, a customer that continues to buy parts from us from uh, Interior Alaska, and he had an engine failure over the tundra on PK float. And when he impacted the ground, he thought he broke his back from the, the crack that he heard. God. Come to find out, he broke the seat in his Cessna 206. He, he, he hit so hard, he broke the seat. The only thing he damaged on the floats was the spray the spray rail that hit some brush. That's the only thing. They flew the airplane out with a helicopter, and he bought a new spray rail, and the float was back in service. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing, because I know that I have bent that spray rail tripping on it, and... I think I've, I've hit it with the little um, tractor that we use. So, oh my gosh, the fact that everything survived and he survived. 
That's a pretty cool story. That's an yeah. amazing story. Yeah. That's an amazing story. So, you know, I, I just have to say, uh, getting back to that weight and performance trade-off and everything else, that, that's a uh, topic that we're going to talk about in a future podcast where we talk about the, the why you would choose an amphibious float over a straight float and what the the benefits and the cost and the you know drawbacks are of doing so. So that's going to be something we're going to talk about in the future. So I think it's time because I'm just dying. I'm sitting in here and people are literally like texting me as we're recording this. They're wanting to know about this latest announcement of, of a product that you guys have. Uh, what's all this hype about? I mean, my, my phone, I, I think everyone's heard it. It's probably been like people are texting me going, what's going on with PK? We could incorporate it into <laughs> I, the do show. I get a, do I get a drum roll? Ooh, that's good. We don't have a sound effect yet. Shoot. <laughs> so PK over the past year has designed and developed and built and tested a float that's specific to the experimental market and it's specific to super cub type aircraft. So the carbon cub, the legend cub, all the home built experimental cubs that you see flying in Alaska and, and all over the U.S. It's an amphibious float specific for that style of airplane. Wow. And we built it in, in partnership with a local uh, farmer that flies a, um, a carbon cub. And he, he just loves to enter it into the stole competition when it's on wheels. And he's all about performance. And he wanted a float for, for his airplane that was an aluminum float that was the appropriate size displacement for his airplane. And that had the qualities of a certified product. So we took everything we knew about building floats and started from a clean sheet of paper and developed this float that we call the 2050A. And so far, he's flown the airplane probably 75 hours on these floats, and it performs great. Wow, 2050. So, I mean, when you put that on a carbon cub, uh, that's literally like the perfect displacement for a carbon cub there's plenty of margin of safety with the buoyancy on this float the carbon cub ex2 is an 1865 pound airplane the ex3 is a 2000 pound airplane the perfect size float for either of those um, sizes the legend cub is a 2000 pound airplane perfect for that awesome so meeting that fa requirement and everything for the buoyancy does yeah, yeah, it's based on the design that if it were to be a certified float, um, you know, it, it would it would meet all the requirements. We're choosing to go the route of the experimental aircraft because it's one of the fastest growing <coughs> segments of aviation. No, it right makes, sense. The, makes sense. Does um does the A stand for awesome? <laughs> It does. It does. It, it does also stands stand. for amphibious. <laughs> no, no, no. It stands for Wow. Awesome. We, we have Abby in an overly giddy mood today. I had a lot of cake for lunch. So. Yeah, I got to stop. I, I make coffee cake and she's been chomping on that. So. I'm just going to say the A stands for awesome. So that's just really amazing. You know, I've been following you guys on Instagram and I know you're on Facebook. You guys are really active. And um, the stole capability. I think you just had a post that came out and it was you know, showing off the stole capabilities of his cub on the 2050 days. That there's a little backstory to that video. Um, Like I said, he's, he's really into the stole competition. There's a, there's a whole Northeast circuit of these stole competitions all through the summer. And 
he was at a stole competition last weekend with the airplane and he wasn't able to compete, you know, because he's on the amphib float and he really wanted to, you know, they could see that it was bugging him. So they made a category just for amphibious float planes. And there were several amphibious float planes there. Um, they made a category just for amphibs and, and he went out and, and that video was from his, his takeoff run. It's a great video. Wow. And you'll be able to see more of PK's and everyone's uh, videos coming out uh, on the Seaplanes Instagram that Abby is maintaining the account. She's our chief, our, our communications director. On Having media. a lot of fun. So Leva, I and I are both running our own accounts and I'm following him. He's following us. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to get us up to the standard that I know PK is at for their social media because you guys are posting some really cool stuff. We're we're a little bit behind the uh, the the curve on social media, but it's it's how we're doing the majority of our advertisement now. Yeah, it's it makes really sense. great because so many people are connected with it, and the aviation community, as small as it is, you know, it, it's a great platform for people to be able to share with, with other people across the country what what's going on. Yeah. Well, that's that's just awesome. So uh, I have to tell you, I could sit here and have this conversation all day. Um, but I think what we should do is, is try to get you back maybe for, uh, the Amphib straight float or some other conversations that we're going to have. And, and I just thank you so much for joining us. I always look forward to coming up to the factory and, and miss coming up to, uh, Maine to fly this year, uh, with COVID and, uh, hopefully we'll get Abby up there with the, uh, super cub, uh, next year. We'll be looking forward to that. So, uh, we're excited to see what comes next from you guys. And, uh, thank you so much. All right. Thank you. We, we do have some more exciting news coming up. Hopefully we'll be talking about that in the springtime. And next time uh, you or Abby are up in Maine, we'd be happy to give you a tour of the factory. But thanks for having me on the show and look forward to maybe doing the show about Amphib versus Straight Float. Awesome. We are so glad you joined us today. If you like today's show... I highly encourage you to join the Seaplane Pilots Association and become a member of the largest seaplane community in the world. Members receive Water Flying, the only full-color glossy magazine dedicated to the seaplane community. And it's available in both printed and digital form. Your membership also includes access to the Water Landing Directory app, which has the Seaplane Flight School directory and a calendar of seaplane events, not only here in the United States, but around the world. The association hosts regular educational workshops, safety seminars, and gatherings for seaplane pilots and anyone with a passion for seaplanes. So look us up online at seaplanes.org, join our community, and support our mission of protecting and promoting water flying.